are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Let's pray together. God, we do declare that we do need you, God. Thank you for moments like this. Thank you for songs like that, Lord. Thank you for days like today where we can be reminded that in our weakness that you are strong, that that in our our frailty and in our failures, Lord, that you are faithful. And so, God, I pray that we would lean on you, that we would be strengthened by you, that we would wait on you, depend on you, that we would learn afresh what it means to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and to live in desperate dependence and complete devotion uh, to you, Lord, at every hour, in every moment, with every decision, with every thought, with every temptation, God. We pray, Lord, that we would draw close to you and that you would use your word right now. God, we need to hear from you, Lord. We need a word from you, from your word. And we pray, Lord God, that you would do that in Jesus' name. We thank you and praise you. Amen. Amen. Well, please get your hands on a Bible and open it up to the book of Galatians. Ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now to lend Bibles or to give Bibles to people uh, for people who uh, need a copy of God's Word uh, today. Uh, the title for today's message is to uh, walk by the Spirit. Really the, the predominant metaphor as we come to the end of the book of Galatians, the way that we are now supposed to live. Paul has gone to great lengths to say that we don't live according to the law. We don't live according to the flesh. We don't live according to works or legalism. And he's been saying we're not supposed to live that way. And the metaphor that he uses for the way that we're supposed to live, if we're not not constrained anymore, if we have freedom, if we're not trapped anymore by the law or by the flesh or by death, how are we supposed to live in freedom? How are we supposed to live lives that are right and true if we're not supposed to just be following a bunch of rules. And Paul's answer is walking in the Spirit. Galatians uh, 5 verse uh, 14, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so we're going to be talking today about walking by the Spirit. But what we're going to find as we look at this passage today is that as we're walking by the Spirit, the Spirit is going to walk us into some places that we might not expect. You see, some teaching in the Christian church sounds like to be walking in the Spirit is somehow to be walking on air and walking down easy street and walking in power and signs and wonders and all and everything is so easy and straightforward. But what we're going to find is that is really not how the Spirit leads us. There are moments, there are mountaintop moments when we're walking by the Spirit, but there are also valleys and there are some places where the Spirit wants to take us where we naturally may not want to go. And so we're going to look at three places the Spirit is going to take us if we walk by Him, if we walk with him. The first one you can jot this down is he's going to take us to the place of inner conflict. He's going to walk us along and show us our inner conflict. Again in verse 16 he says, "But I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And so the spirit is going to show us this inner conflict. If you are not right now experiencing an inner turmoil, a conflict in your own personal life, you are not walking by the Spirit. Because if you are going to walk by the Spirit, something called the flesh is going to try to get in your way. And to walk by the Spirit means that you are walking through a war zone. And we are at war, notice the language here, against opposed to. It's between the spirit and the flesh. Now the flesh is not referring to our physical bodies. When he's saying walk by the spirit, he's saying again, he's not saying walk on a cloud or walk on air, walk on some sort of other spiritual level, ignoring the physical flesh and blood of this world. No, when he says flesh, he's talking about sinful humanity, the tendencies, the behaviors that go on among unredeemed, sinful human beings. Now, oftentimes when it talks about the flesh, it's referring to a place where we used to live, a way that we used to live. That's how the New Testament often talks about the flesh. Let me give you a couple of examples. Romans 7 verse 5 says, for while we were living in the flesh, the flesh used to be a place where we lived. And we used to play by the flesh's rules. The flesh was our boss. We used to live in the flesh. Our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That's how we, we used to be dead before Christ made us alive. Look at this, Ephesians 2 verse 3 says, For we all once lived, back in the day, before someone comes to Christ, they are living, notice this, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were dead in our sins. We were living in the flesh. And then Romans 8, 9 says, You, however, here's the change. You, however, are not in the flesh. You used to live in the flesh, but now you don't live there anymore. The, the flesh no longer has control over you the way it used to. But now you live in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So here's the thing, though. When we read the pages of the New Testament, we're told repeatedly, you are not in the flesh. The flesh is no longer your boss. Why? Because when someone becomes a Christian, and if you're not a Christian here today, I want to make this offer, this appeal to you. That I know that there are things in your life that you want to change. There are, there's dysfunction, there's disobedience, there's rebellion. Your life is a mess. And, and you want to live rightly. Listen, it's only going to happen when you turn to Jesus Christ because right now you are being governed by the flesh. You are ruled by the flesh. What you need to do is to repent, to turn away from your sin, to stop living that way, to place your faith in Jesus Christ who died to pay the penalty for your sin so that you can receive eternal life. You can make that decision Today, if you have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you or there will be leaders at the front who will want to discuss that with you or talk about, the person who brought, talk about it with the person who brought you to church today. But if you are here today and you are a Christian, you no longer live in the flesh, but this is what you need to understand. Even though you no longer live in the flesh, you need to understand that the flesh lives in you. 
And while we were living in the flesh, we were developing habits. We were developing instincts. We were giving into desires, these sort of reflexive reactions. When temptation came, when we were living in the flesh, we just automatically gave in. We didn't have a choice. Sin said jump, we said how high. But Christ has saved us and made us new. And now we no longer live in the flesh, but the flesh is living in us, but we are at war with the flesh. Take a look at these verses in uh, the book of Romans again. Romans 8 verse 13 says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Notice this, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you're walking by the Spirit, you are walking, you're following with Him, you are going on a kill mission. You are walking your flesh to its execution. You are repeatedly putting that part of you that reflexes, that by instinct gives into sinful desires, you are putting that to death. You're in a war zone. There's an inner conflict. Colossians 3 verse 5, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. Put to death what is earthly in you. It is, it, it's not us, but it's in us. It's not in charge, but it's still present. Those passions, those desires, those instincts, those reflexes. Lastly, 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Loved ones, we're all at war. And I know that there are some people, and you're here today, and you are so burdened by the way you've been behaving. And you are so overcome with guilt and with shame because you, are, you feel like you are constantly at war and you feel like you're losing that battle and the question is always popping into your mind, am I even really a Christian? You need to understand that if you're having that continual battle, that is more evidence than ever that you are a Christian. When you weren't a Christian, you were living in the flesh. You didn't care. But now you are fighting, even if you feel like you're losing. It is evidence that you are indeed walking in the Spirit because you feel that inner conflict. We no longer live in the flesh, but the flesh lives in us. It's as though the army of Christ Jesus has conquered a specific territory that used to be occupied by our enemy, the flesh. And Christ has conquered but remnants of the enemy's soldiers, landmines buried by the enemy, by the flesh, are still present in that territory. And as we're walking by the Spirit, the Spirit is warning us and leading us, saying, be prepared when you go down that street. Be ready because there are landmines in that field. And so... Christ has conquered. He rules over the territory of our lives. But in our lives, there is evidence that the flesh is still fighting. And so if we're going to walk by the Spirit, listen, we got to be ready to fight. we got to roll up our sleeves. we got to put up our dukes. we got to be ready to fight the fight of faith in the power of the Spirit. Here's some ways that you can think about when that fight comes. It's different for everyone. For some of us, certain situations 
put us at risk of being defeated by the flesh. For others of us, it's certain songs that might trigger something in our memory and get our patterns of thinking going down a bad road. For others of us, it's certain smells that back in the day when we were living in the flesh, we smelled that smell and we knew exactly what to go and get. But now we've changed. We're no longer in the flesh. But there's still that instinctual pull. For some of us, it's, it's certain stresses. When we were living in the flesh and we used to get stressed, we, we responded in a, a very clear way. We went and did something or we spoke a certain way or we behaved a certain thing or we went and got in a certain thing or we, we did something when we were stressed to try to deal with it. Those are all, that's all evidence. If you're walking by the Spirit, you are at certain sounds, certain songs, certain sights. You, you, your, your, your eyes come across something or someone and you're instinctually, in the old days, you used to zero in on that and look right at that and now... The Spirit is saying, no, you're walking by the Spirit. And if you're feeling the pull, you need to understand that the Spirit has the power to help you. We're going to talk about how does He actually help us to say no to these things. So He's going to make us aware of the inner conflict. And as we're walking by the Spirit, He's also going to make us aware of this. He's going to make us aware of the outer evidence. He's going to show us the outer evidence. How can we know? Are we, are we giving in to those instincts or are we living by the Spirit? So Paul says in verse, oh sorry, I want to make this clear before I move on in verse 17. This is very important. At the end of verse 17 it says, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The flesh is trying to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. To do this is as we're fighting this war, you need to understand that Satan's predominant weapon is propaganda, advertising, fake news. And what Satan is always trying to do is spread propaganda. And what he's saying is, when you're feeling the conflict, he's always saying, You're not really a Christian. Give in and do it because the real you, I can't believe you still have those desires. The fact that you still have those desires shows who you really are. It doesn't show who you really are. Paul says here right here in black and white, it's to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The real you wants to obey. And you need, that is as much as spiritual warfare as anything. To remind yourself who you are in Christ. I have been crucified with him. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, Galatians 2.20. And so we have to fight the propaganda war as well to remember the true me wants to obey and wants to live in the Spirit. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You're not, you're not condemned. Even though you're fighting this battle, you're not under the law. More about that later. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These are the works of the flesh. A list of 15 things. I want to try to break it down for us to, to, to make sense of it. Here's four categories of sin that's Described. There are sexual sins, spiritual sins, social sins, which is almost half the list, and then substance abuse sins. He begins with sexual sins. 
Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, verse 19. These are, these are all different ways of describing our tendency as human beings to take God's good gift of sex and perverting it in all kinds of different directions. Taking God's intention, which is marriage between one man and one woman for one lifetime, and taking sex where, where it belongs and moving it out. The way I often think about sexuality, it's, it's like a fire. And uh, this morning for Father's Day, I got this beautiful new sort of fireplace uh, area and to, to, to put out in our backyard. Now, fire in the right place at the right time is a great thing. It's comforting. It keeps you warm. It's, it's stimulating. You, you, find, you ever find you're sitting around a campfire, you spot one of your friends, they're just blankly staring at the fire. Sex is like that. In the right place, at the right time. It's this incredible thing. But listen, if I were to take that little fire pit and take some of the pieces of wood and just put it on my backyard grass, that's no longer good. That's a problem, isn't it? And if I were to take some of those burning embers and put them on my living room floor and, and up in my kids' bedrooms, up on the bunk bed, we're going to have a real problem, aren't we? And what Satan is always trying to do is take God's good intention for sexuality where it belongs, the right time, the right place in the context of marriage, and spread it all over the place. And what happens? Everything gets destroyed. And aren't we not seeing that in our world today? Have you not experienced that in some way, shape, or form? In your own life? With your own thinking? Or haven't you had a, a, a loved one who was completely destroyed or ripped apart from some sort of sexual immorality, whether it be an action, or just what was happening with things they were looking at or thinking about. So all of these th three terms are describing times where, where we take God's good gift and put it and use it somewhere it doesn't belong. Sexual sins are of the flesh. Spiritual sins, idolatry and sorcery. Do you see those in verse 20? Uh, idolatry, worshiping something other than God. That's not just simply referring to bowing down to a statue. They, they had lots of statues. Um, back in the ancient Roman world, but they weren't really worshiping the statue. They were worshiping what they wanted the statue, the God, to do for them, whether it be to make them successful in their business or whether to give them something like sexual pleasure, which can become an idol, or, or, or protection, safety, security, all of these things. The reasons why they had gods for everything is because everything can become a god. And so that's what's referring to idolatry. That sorcery is trying to use, you know, spells or, or incantations to try to manipulate the world around you. And that, this isn't something that Christians should trifle with. A seances, Ouija boards, all of that. So that's not something that, that a Christian should, should play a horoscope. That's, that's not something that we should be messing with. That is completely of the flesh, it's not of the spirit. And then social sins, enmity and strife, just breakdown in relationships, a failure to communicate proper, a failure to understand, an inherent selfishness that rather than trying to understand, demanding that you are understood as if that were the most important thing. And then jealousy, which is trying to control people 
A jealous person tries to put limits on their friends or their family about where they can go or who they can talk to. Or because you're my friend, I'm concerned that you're spending time with that other friend over there. And so I need to go and, and, and stir that up a little bit to make sure that I'm in control. A fits of anger, losing control of your anger, often excused as an intense personality or that's just the way I am. Listen, it's the flesh. It's not right. Rivalries, uh, that's describing selfish ambition or comparison, comparing and competing with one another, which leads to dissensions and divisions. Factions, uh, splitting a church, splitting up a family. And then envy, which is a failure to simply be happy for someone else when something good happens to them. A, a, a failure to, to genuinely celebrate the successes of someone else. And then substance abuse sins, drunkenness. And we have a, a variety of ways uh, to abuse substances, more than they had in the uh, ancient Roman world. But substance abuse, and then that word orgies, that's, that's really a general generic term just to describe a party that is absolutely out of control. It could go in any kind of direction, any of the things that I've described there. Now when we think about this list, you've got to understand that when Paul's describing these things, I mean, these, these sins fit in every kind of a category. I mean, sorcery may not have ever been an issue for you. For some of us, it might have been. So there, you know what, there's, there's pagan people who like literally are, like, worship pagan gods and are involved in witchcraft and voodoo and, and that's a fear for them. That's a, that's a, a lure for them. And there's many parts in the world where a whole sermon right now, because it's so relevant to their culture, a whole sermon would be given on the dangers of sorcery. And don't go back to the witch doctor. And trust in Jesus. And don't be afraid of black magic and all of these. It may not be an issue for us. But listen, there's certain people in the world who are, struggle with those things based on where they live and how they were brought up. There's, there's, so there's pagan people, there's, there's party people, right? Drunkenness, orgies, uh, all of this sort of stuff. And some of us think, well, you know, I'm not a pagan and I'm not a, I'm not, I haven't been a real heavy drinker. I'm not, I'm not a real partier. And, but listen, there's, there's pagan people, there's party people. But look, guys, there's also proper people. A lot of these sins here are the sins of proper people. Enmity and strife. Division and dissension. Even as we're defining what sexual immorality actually is, you can look all proper on the outside, but what's going on in the head and what's happening behind closed doors is a whole other story, isn't it? And these are deeds of the flesh. And so what Paul is describing here, I mean, this goes from pastors to palm readers, sex workers to soccer moms. No one is exempt from being tempted or lured, and it might look different for different people, but it's, it's, this is fallen, sinful humanity poured out for us, described for us clearly. And if you look at the, in the middle of verse 21, after he mentions drunkenness and orgies, he says, and things like these. So this list is not exhaustive. Paul could have gone on and on and on. But he's saying it's evident He's saying these things are obvious. They're in plain sight. And then he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, 
that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul lays down this warning and he says, as I warned you before, because Paul's trying, he's, he wants to be clear because he's laying out this pathway of freedom. We're no longer under the law. We're no longer saved by works. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. We never were saved by works. It's always been saved by faith. That's what he's been trying to make clear. But he's trying to say, I'm not telling you that freedom from sin means you have freedom to sin. So he's saying, hey, I warned you about this before. I'm not telling you just to go out and live your life however you want because God will forgive you. No, he's saying walk by the Spirit. And look how stern his warning is. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That word do in the Greek, it's in a, it's in a present active participle. It's not describing a, uh, a temporary, unintentional lapse or a period of hard heartedness. What's, what's being described here is repeated, unrepented patterns of sinful behavior. And he says, those who, are in, who do these things, that it's a pattern, that it's unrepentant, and that it's repeated, he says, those will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, those people are not actually filled with the Spirit. You can walk by the Spirit and feel the pull of those things as part of the inner conflict, but if you're full out living those things, don't tell me you're a Christian, that's what Paul says. So I want to speak as one proper person to another proper person, because I think that's probably the majority of people that I'm speaking to right now. People who do those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you need to understand what repentance looks like. You need to understand that you need to reach out to someone and to get some help. You need to confess it to God. You need to confess it to a brother who is going to help you in your weakness, which is described later in, look at, look at, just look at, at chapter 6, verse 1. If anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So if someone is caught in, if you're caught in a transgression... You need to go to someone who is spiritual, someone who is filled with the Spirit, who will restore you, who will help, who won't judge you, but will love you and help you to walk in repentance. Don't let another day go by. If you come across like this proper person, but there are things happening in your mind or behind closed doors, you need to confess and to repent. But I want to remind you that if you are struggling in the conflict and you're talking to people about it and you're asking people to pray, be assured you are saved. You are walking before him. Look further down at chapter 6 and verse 7. For those who are hiding their sin and think, well, no one knows about it, so I, I, I don't really want to stir the pot too much. I don't want to... I don't want to communicate this to anyone right now. Verse 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You might think no one knows. Listen, God knows. And God will not be mocked. And I want to tell you, I know the pull 
of being a proper person and not wanting to tell someone else what's actually happening. God is not mocked. You have to tell someone. Tell someone who's spiritual. Tell someone who you can trust. There will be, again, there will be leaders at the front here. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to the person who came with you to church. You think they're going to respond. You think, you, you did what? You're doing what you think they're going to respond. But we're commanded on how we're supposed to respond when someone's caught in sin. This is how people have responded to me when I've confessed things to them. In a spirit of gentleness. Because God is not mocked. God loves you too much to let that sin continue to grow in your life. It must be repented of. It must be dealt with. So we need to understand how pervasive the, the works of the flesh are and the danger that they produce. Now let's talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Restoring someone, when they tell you about sin, that's restoring them in a spirit of gentleness. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Look at verse 22. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Here's four observations I want to make about uh, the nine fruit of the Spirit. You can jot these down. The fruit of the Spirit is singular. The fruit of the Spirit is gradual. The fruit of the Spirit is inevitable. And the fruit of the Spirit is spiritual. First of all, that it's singular. Because it's a list, we, we like to divide these lists into nine categories. But it doesn't say fruits of the Spirit. It's fruit of the Spirit. All of this is supposed to be happening in our lives at once. Also make note of the fact that it's gradual. If you were to go out to uh, Orchula Farm over on Heritage Road and try to watch the apple trees grow this afternoon, that would be a very boring exercise because it's so gradual. But if you were to visit there uh, this summer and then maybe a late summer, early fall, late fall, you would see a big difference, wouldn't you? But the way that fruit grows, you can't perceive it with your eyes when you're watching it. Only over time, and we need to be thinking about that when we're thinking about the fruit of the Spirit, especially those who are struggling. It's gradual. It's also inevitable. It will happen. And you need to take comfort in that, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. God has made you a tree and you will bear fruit. It is going to happen by his Spirit, and then lastly, it's spiritual. Now, some of you are like, oh, thanks for that brilliant insight, Ted. I got out of bed this morning, drove to church, and you're here telling me the fruit of the Spirit is spiritual. Duh. But here's a reason why I want to remind us of that. The fruit of the Spirit is spiritual because what happens as soon as we read the list? What do we do as soon as we read the list about the fruit of the Spirit? Everyone point to where we look when we hear the fruit of the Spirit. We look right here, and we start thinking, a love, I, I'm, I'm not that loving, a joyful, I'm kind of struggling with depression right now, I certainly don't have a peace, and, and immediately we hear the fruit of the Spirit, and we look at ourselves, and we start doing a checklist, and we start lifting off all the things that we're doing or that we're not doing. But Jesus said that when the Helper comes, He will glorify me. 
And if you just use the fruit of the Spirit to look at yourself, you're not doing what the Spirit came to do. If you allow the fruit of the Spirit, if you allow the Spirit to glorify the Son in your life, to get your eyes on Jesus and not your own failures, that is when real life transformation comes. And so when we think about the fruit of the Spirit, when we think about love, we remember that we love because God first loved us. That 1 John 4, 19, that we didn't initiate, but when we receive the love of God, then, only then, will we be able to turn and unconditionally and sacrificially love other people. Think about joy. Jesus prayed for the, or he told the, the disciples in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you, he said, so that my joy might be in you. Jesus is the most joyful human being who ever lived. Jesus is filled with joy, and it's the joy of the Lord that's our strength, not our joy. And so don't look at yourself and say, I don't smile enough, I don't laugh. I, I, I'm Listen, look at Jesus. Look at his joy, and that will fill you with joy. Well, I'm suffering right now, and I'm kind of grumbling. Well, think about how Jesus suffered, and how he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, Hebrews 12. Allow the Spirit to exalt and glorify the Son as you think about the fruit of the Spirit. Think about peace. Think about how Jesus has made it possible, Romans 5.1, for us to have peace with God. Because we have peace with God, that leads to peace with other people. That leads to peace within our own soul. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Jesus said in 14, John 14.27 to his disciples, he says, My peace I give to you. When we think about patience, when we're struggling with annoying and irritating people, we've got to think about how God is so patient with us. Before we tell our kids, before I tell my kids, how many times have I told you not to do that? We've got to think, what if God used that on us? How many times has he told us to change our ways or to grow or to turn to him? And how many times do we just flat out disobey him? He is so patient with us. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.16 that his whole conversion was to display God's perfect patience. Paul knew the patience of God. And that fruit of the Spirit grew in him not by looking at himself but by looking at his Savior. Kindness. Romans 2 says God's kindness leads us to repentance. And so when we look at our hard-hearted spouse, our natural inclination is, I know how to melt that hard heart. I'll give them the cold shoulder. And I'll stop talking to them. And I'll stop being vulnerable to them or intimate with them. And I'll melt the hard heart with a cold shoulder. That has never worked. What melts a hard heart? Only kindness. That's how it worked with us. Did God send us the cold shoulder? No, he sent us his son, Jesus Christ, and showed us kindness when we were undeserving. Goodness, God is good. Amen? Even when we don't deserve it, he is good. He is faithful. Lamentations 3.23, every morning, new experiences of his mercy. He is faithful. We can be more reliable people only when, we can be people of our word only when 
we understand that God always fulfills his promises and is always faithful. Gentleness, Jesus said of himself, take my yoke upon you, I am gentle and lowly in Matthew eleven twenty four. 24. Take my yoke, I am gentle. Jesus says, I am humble. The, the gentleness, uh, uh, humility go hand in hand. It's, 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 it's the word, or similar to the word that describes Philippians 2 about how Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the, even to the point of death on a cross. You can try to be humble all you want. You can try to do hard jobs without being noticed. You can try to stop bragging and boasting about yourself. You can work hard at being humble. Or you can think about the fact that your sin cost Jesus Christ to suffer and die on the cross. Nothing will humble us like that. It's only when we get our eyes off ourselves and onto our Savior will we actually see, will we let the Spirit actually produce the fruit in us. And then self-control. Why do we struggle with self-control? We struggle with self-control because we want control so badly. And when we feel like we're losing it, we lose our self-control. We want a home that's controlled, and when, when someone else raises their voice or gives a snarky comment or, or, or breaks something around, we want control, and what happens when we feel like we're losing control? We lose our self-control. But loved ones, when we understand that God is in control, and that he is sovereign, that he is in control, then that produces self-control in us. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews chapter 1. So the fruit of the Spirit, loved ones, the most straightforward point is the most important point. It is spiritual. Let the Spirit get your eyes on Jesus. He says, against such things there is no Law. There, there can be no, if you're living this way, there can be no condemnation for you. Because these characteristics, are you going to condemn God? Because you're going to start living according to his image. These are his attributes. Love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so we start to see evil things in our lives like enmity and strife and fits of anger. It gets replaced with patience and Peace. We see rivalries and dissensions, divisions, envy and jealousy get replaced with goodness and, and kindness. Sexual immorality is replaced with faithfulness. And drunkenness is replaced with, with self-control. Loved ones, let the Spirit produce these things in you as the Spirit glorifies the Son. That was His mission. And His His. his his mission is further unpacked in the New Testament. He's our seal and our guarantee to, to show that we belong to God. He is the spirit of adoption that causes us to say, Abba, Father. And so when we're walking by the Spirit, He's going to walk us into the inner conflict. He's going to show us the outer evidence, but He's also going to remind us of this, loved ones. He's going to remind us that we are called to the higher calling. And one of the roles of the Holy Spirit and the way that the fruit of the Spirit is produced in us is he reminds us who we are. Verse 24 says, those who belong to Christ. The Spirit is always trying to tell you, you belong to Christ. Say, Abba, Father. You are a son. You are a daughter of God. Say it. Say, Abba, Father. He's, 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 he's encouraging us to, to respond to 
God, to relate to God, to know that we belong to God. We don't belong to the flesh. He says those who belong to Christ Jesus, notice this, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, there's some of you who are struggling to follow Paul's logic here. If, if the flesh and its desires have been crucified, why did he bother listing all the deeds of the flesh? Why does he say that we're at war if, why, how are we at war with the flesh if the flesh has been crucified? And then others of you are not only having trouble following Paul's logic in this passage, other of you are trying to struggle with just even your own life. You feel like the flesh is alive and well. You feel like the works of the flesh sometimes are way stronger than the fruit of the Spirit. That's why you're, you're, you're struggling so much. Well, in my study this week, I, I turned back to a, a favorite book of mine by a pastor named Charles Leiter. The book's called Justification and Regeneration. And he uses so many powerful metaphors in this book, and he talks about the fact that when a tree has been chopped down, it looks like the leaves are still healthy for a while, doesn't it? The branches still look strong, but the tree's dead. It might look alive, but it's dead. And so as we close today, I want to share with you just sort of a, a parable, a visual parable of the orchard of your life. Your life was an orchard, and there was only one tree in it, and it was the tree of the flesh. And this tree produced enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of anger and all of the 15 things and things like these. But God came along with the acts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he chopped down that tree. And he came along with the shovel of the Spirit. And he planted the seed of the gospel. The seed of the Spirit into your life. Now, if you're walking through the orchard of this person's life right now. And say, show me the tree. Are you going to point to the right side of the diagram or to the left? Tell me. You're going to point to the left. You're going to say the tree's right there. I mean, look, it's, it's there. There's a huge trunk. There's branches. There's leaves. That's a tree. That's not a tree. That's a dead piece of wood. The tree is growing under the surface. And some of you feel, some of you are new in Christ, you feel like this is where you're at. But remember, it's gradual. Eventually, that tree is going to start to decompose, and eventually, that new tree, the tree of the Spirit, is going to begin to grow. And again, in, in someone's life, they seem like they're the same size. But what is happening? The dead tree is dying, and the fruit of the Spirit is growing, so that as it continues to grow, and as it continues to grow, that dead tree continues to shrivel. Your flesh is dead and dying. It is fighting a losing battle. It is gradual, but it is inevitable and it is spiritual. We need to understand that, loved ones. And so the Spirit, if you're walking by the Spirit, He'll continually be telling you, Jesus loves you. You are changing. Don't give up. You belong to him. You are bearing fruit. Be patient. It's gradual, but it's inevitable, and it's spiritual. Get your eyes on Jesus and produce that kind of fruit. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I, I feel like, I feel like this particular message, this 
I didn't write this in a week, God. This, this took my whole life. A whole life of struggling with sin. A whole life of being converted as a child and then experiencing so many ups and downs, God. And so, Father, I, I thank you. I know that the battle's not over in my own life. And I pray, God, that my own experience and what has been laid down here in God's word so clearly... God, I pray especially for those who are struggling with the security of their own salvation. I pray that they would be encouraged by the conflict and that they would take heart even though they are struggling, that the struggle itself is evidence of their salvation. And God, I pray that your spirit would remind us in this moment, God, and in other moments when temptation comes, Lord, that you by your spirit would remind us that we belong to you and that the true us wants to obey and wants to believe and that you will indeed produce fruit in our lives. And so God, we invite you in this moment, we invite you the, to take the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us, God, and to stir in us a passion for the, your son Jesus Christ, to look to him, to worship him, to desire him. Spirit, we invite you to work now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.